0: Welcome to Tea and Theology. This is Richard Ward, and I'm here with my wife, Danielle. Hi there. And our good friend, David Arizaga. Hey. Today we are discussing apologetics and the Christian faith with Tim Jacobs. But Before we get into our discussion, David, would you please tell us about the tea we're drinking? Yeah, like always on Tea and Theology, we're pushing cultural divides away to the side, and we have some bitki chaya. I don't know if I said that right. But it's linden flowers. It's an herbal tea. And just for our listeners to get some some idea of what, what we got going on, it smells very earthy, very unlocking a lot of childhood memories. Almost smells, I don't know if we should cut this out, but almost smells like a farm. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good, though. I like it. But as we're sipping, uh, Mr. Tim, uh, if you want to reintroduce yourself or tell us what you got going on, please.
1: Yeah, it's fun to be with you guys again. Um, my name is Tim Jacobs. I teach philosophy at a place called the Davenant Institute. I'm also assistant provost there. It's kind of an online Bible school for pastors. So go ahead and check that out. So I'm, I'm working there and I'm just about finished with my uh, PhD in philosophy, um, Christian philosophy, ethics. Nice.
0: So today we're discussing apologetics and the Christian faith. I think a good place to start is with a definition of apologetics. What is apologetics and what is its goal?
1: Yeah, so the goal of apologetics is actually evangelism. In fact, it's a little bit more helpful to think of evangelism or to think of apologetics as part of evangelism more than strictly part of philosophy or theology. And that's because the goal is, you know, like 1 Peter 3:15 says, always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so that's what apologetics really is, is, is it's part of evangelism. You know, somebody asks you your testimony, you give them your story, that is your reason. You know, of course you can get more or less sophisticated with your reasons, depending on what is going to serve the person that you're talking to, um, but the goal is to share the gospel. Um, so it's, yeah. So it's helpful to think of it as evangelism, actually. Um, but part of that, as we give a re- you know, as the Bible says, as we give a reason, what, what, are, good, what are good reasons? What are good reasons to uh, believe what we believe? Do we have good reasons? right? Do we have any reasons at all? Because um, really today, there's, uh, the relationship between faith and reason has come on some hard times, both in uh, just the world in general, as well as also in the church. And the reason for that is in in the world the world's perspective, it's kind of like this. Like if you ask what's somebody's favorite color or it or or you ask, is the world round, like one of those is going to be like the subject of science. And the other one is just sort of like personal sentiment. And this is this these are totally disconnected kind of realms of human experience. And that's how the world tends to think of faith versus reason that, like, these things have nothing to do with each other, right? Like, how are you going to use science to talk about what your favorite color is or what you're feeling today, something like this? Although, actually, we kind of do. The the point is it's very disconnected in in sort of the secular world. But, uh, unfortunately, maybe accidentally, uh, that has seeped into the church as well. And so it's not very popular for Christians to say that you can prove the existence of God. Um, we have a tendency to be a little bit um, nervous in saying that. like that's a little bit taboo today to say that you actually can prove the existence of God um, because that's some of that has seeped into the church uh, as well. So this relationship between faith and reason, they're, they're very strongly connected in the Bible, in theology. And you can think of it kind of like uh, the relationship between theology and philosophy. What the, sort of the biblical view of these things is that philosophy is basically all of the best reasoning that you can do, like, just as a human. Uh, Not necessarily with the Bible, but just without the Bible. And so because of this, all of our sciences sort of stem from philosophy. That's why the highest... A uh, degree in any science is a PhD, because at that level, you know, that means philosophy doctorate. You can get philosophy doctorate in astronomy. Well, what does astronomy have to do with philosophy? Well, at the highest levels, now you're dealing with uh, theories and under, underlying principles, and it's just sort of the highest level of thinking we can do in whatever that field is. So, uh, but then we get um, the God who authored us he, he, he created us, and in creation, the first thing, the first action that a human does is really science, right? So uh, Adam is supposed to go out and look at the animals and name them. So he's, like, doing scientific classification, right? He's got to understand similarities and differences. Um, but so we're made to be able to do this kind of stuff. But then also, like, God is involved. right? God comes in. And he gives us some of the answers. Right? He gives us the Bible. He uh, a lot of what's in the Bible is just a repeat of stuff that we figured out on, on, on our own. You know, we don't need the Bible specifically to tell us that murder is wrong. Like it wasn't wrong when the Ten Commandments were given, it was always wrong. You know, uh, you know, Cain and Abel didn't have the Bible. You know, everybody everywhere should know that murder is wrong. But we get that repetition repeated and then we also get a bunch of things that we couldn't figure out on our own. So theology is is still includes everything from philosophy and then adds on to it. It's not like a separate or parallel thing or disconnected or thinking that philosophy is like a bad thing. You can have worldly philosophy, you can have philosophy that explicitly denies the Bible is in contradiction to the Bible, but certainly the biblical view is we should be using our reason as much as we can and uh, then apply that reason to the Bible. And that's how we get things like you know, biblical theology, systematic theology, things like this. So there's a strong relationship uh, between those two. Of course, grace is going uh, to play a role when we talk about salvation as well. But maybe we'll leave that for another question.
0: So you mentioned you can prove the existence of God. But how does grace fit into all of that?
1: Sure. Well, that's a, a great question. And for that, I think a good place to start is with Romans 1, uh, 18 and beyond. So it says in Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, here's a key word here, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's an act of will that we all do, suppress truth. The truth. So, what's the, what's the truth? What are we suppressing? Seems like there's something that's there, and then we suppress it. So, what's already there? Well, continuing on, uh, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse." Right, so even our moral obligation to worship God depends on the fact that we actually can recognize signs of God from creation. If if we couldn't, then we would be like animals, right? Animals aren't sort of guilty and go to heaven or hell or something like this, right? Uh, we have a responsibility to respond to these reasons that are clearly, you know, as the Bible says, clearly perceived, clearly displayed in creation. But what do we do with that information? We suppress it. That's an act of will. That's something that, w- so we can, so it's not, it's not, uh, so we need to start our idea of, um, sort of how does this play into salvation and evangelism? With thinking first and foremost, God made us rational creatures who, who, even after the fall, are still rational enough to recognize things from creation that God exists. And you can see evidence of this everywhere. I mean, you don't have to have the Bible to see religions popping up all over the world. Religions totally disconnected from the Western world, you know. Um, every, every sort of indigenous people group from wherever has some kind of religion, right? This is a very natural thing to conclude that the physical, visible world was created by something invisible. Of course, we need the Bible to get a lot of the particulars about what is God like um, and how how does he save us. But then, with that information, we suppress the truth, according to the Bible, right? We suppress the truth. And so, grace is needed. Faith faith is a gift, not sort of the result of our argumentation or reasoning. Faith is a, a gift because he changes our will. We reject him. He sort of rescues us, kicking and screaming, and then after we're rescued, then we love him, right? We love because he loved us first, right? 1 John four nineteen. So we love because he first loved us. So he rescues us, he changes our will, and, uh, but what does that actually look like, right? It, it, God's normal process of this is going to involve uh, somebody sharing the gospel, somebody responding to the gospel. Because when somebody's heart changes, when they start to believe, they believe something. Well, what is that something? Well, that something is a bit of information that was given to them from somebody else, right? Um, I don't know the exact reference, but you know, in, in Romans, elsewhere in Romans it says, How are they here without someone preaching, how they preach without being sent, and so on and so forth. This is the normal means. God can use other means as well, but this is the normal means of salvation, that God sends uh, witnesses, that we, for our joy, we get to participate in his work. We're not going to get in the way of it, but we get to participate in it. So how does that relate to proving God, right? So when you have somebody sharing the gospel, or like 1 Peter 3.15 said, right, giving a reason for the hope that is in you, That reason doesn't change someone's heart. That reason reminds them of what they already should have known, according to Romans 1. It uh, reminds them, it reestablishes them, it points them back to the evidence that they are suppressing. And God uh, may use that, I mean, maybe it's just even just a personal witness, not necessarily some sophisticated argument, right? God may use that, when he changes their hearts, but not necessarily, right? God can do whatever he wants. Um, But you can have the best argument and somebody still not come to the faith because their heart is still suppressing the truth. But you can also have somebody who encounters a pretty bad argument, not very sophisticated argument, and also come to the faith, right? Because this is God's work uh, in our hearts, Um, Nevertheless, the Bible is clear that you can show God from creation and that we should be prepared to have a reason for the hope that we have. And, of of course, that can be anywhere from just your own personal testimony up to, like, super sophisticated arguments.
0: What are some historic apologetic arguments that would be useful for today?
1: Yeah, good question. So, um, I would say... Usually, the most well we have to we have to make a distinction here between um, what is persuasive versus what is sort of like a good argument, right? So you can have something, of course you can have something very persuasive that's a bad argument, but you can also just have sort of mediocre arguments that are very persuasive, and if the goal is evangelism, those might be more useful than Stronger proofs, because stronger proofs might be you know more technical or something like this. Um, I would say that the uh, what I think are the two most persuasive arguments are something called the fine tuning argument and the moral argument. So fine tuning argument, you can find this online all over the place with like William Lane Craig or uh, just anywhere. It's it's easy to Google it. Um, Fine-tuning argument essentially says you look at different, uh, different things in nature, different variables, you know, the speed of light, some different things like this, um, some mathematical constants that basically, like, make the, make the universe possible. And they're completely arbitrary. When something is, you know, it doesn't explain itself, it seems arbitrary the scientific mind that we are as humans asks okay why is it that way right and so you know science is born so we go back to causes you know why is it why is it this way you know why do the animals act this way oh because you know there's some sort of pollution or something or they're healthy you know who knows um so we investigate in this way, but if it's something totally arbitrary but just totally irreducible, seems to come out of nowhere, like the speed of light, um, then the question is where where does it come from? Because this uh, the universe is so finely tuned to make life possible, even to just make physical the physical universe possible, right? Like if the if gravity was just slightly different, or if light was just slightly different, then uh, then you wouldn't even have enough gravity to like keep planets together. You know, there's all kinds of stuff like this, or like the distance from the Earth to the Sun is like perfect. You know, or like the seasons, like all this stuff is that everything is so like just the perfect uh, combination that um, the the only realistic possibility is that this was designed right in the same way that you know this microphone that i'm speaking into or like any like piece of technology um they're finely tuned by a human if it was a little bit different it wouldn't work as well things like this and it's just totally intuitive and automatic for us like we we you know if we saw if i saw this microphone you know lying in the street or like if I'm taking a hike in the forest and I see this microphone lying on the ground, I wouldn't even think of it as an argument to to say, oh, like somebody dropped this microphone. Right? It's not like this sort of, you know, rose out of the dirt by itself. Um, but that's that's the that's sort of the claim, the popular claim today, you know, given enough time and enough random chance, like any amount of complexity is possible. And that's just not actually even possible. I and mean, mathematicians have proven this. So this kind of argument tends to be uh, more persuasive, especially in modern times, as we think a lot about science. But this kind of argument is something called an inductive argument, which is basically a like a probability argument, saying, "Let's look at the patterns and what's usually the case." Right? Inductive arguments will yield like a high... Like, if it's a good argument, it'll yield like a high probability. Oh, like, you know, 99.9% sure that, like, it must be God, not something else, right? Um, But a different kind of argument is something called a deductive argument. This is an argument where the conclusion has absolute certainty. If the premises, if the statements, if the assumptions are true, then the conclusion has to be true. So... Like an example of a deductive argument might be um, a, f- a fetus is uh, an innocent human life. It's wrong to kill innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong, right? Like, if those two first statements are true, then the last statement isn't like probably true. It's like just absolutely true. In order to deny the conclusion, you have to deny one of those assumptions. So, that's a different kind of argument. And we can give those kinds of arguments for. God as well, one of the I think one of the better um, ones is one that cs Lewis presents in the beginning of mere Christianity um, it's sometimes it's called the moral argument it kind of combines a couple different arguments he he talks about um, I'm not going to detail the whole argument because I don't remember all of it off the top of my head but he he starts to talk about how uh, every human experiences morality and we realize that morality isn't just an expression of emotion or an expression of what is convenient or inconvenient because oftentimes uh, we know that doing the right thing is inconvenient or that when we appeal to justice, we're not just talking about what's preferable or... Sentimental or something like this, but that there seems to be a standard that we didn't create, and the only way to explain that is that there's something higher than us that judges us. Um, so he kind of goes that direction. Um, I recently wrote an article based on the sort of historic theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he gave a series of five proofs. I mean, he gave more proofs, but he gave a series of five proofs uh, together. And one of them is Proving God from Perfection. So you can Google that and my name. You'll probably find that article. Proving God from uh, Perfection. And uh, that's, to summarize it, that's thinking like, in our normal everyday experience, we think about comparing things. Better and worse, bigger and smaller, you know, stuff like this. Um. But one of the things that we maybe don't think too often about comparing is, let's say, things that are very different, like, um, well, something that's similar, right? We, 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 can, we can talk about an elephant being bigger than a mouse. But we don't really say an elephant is better than a mouse. But we wouldn't really, we wouldn't really gawk at somebody saying, that a human is more valuable than a mouse, or even maybe that a mouse is more valuable than a plant, something like this. Or um, in some sense, like a higher life form. I mean, that's like a common sense way of talking about humans compared to like animals or plants. And we might even, as Christians, project that out to like angels and to God, things like this. But we're not going to talk about angels and God yet because it's evangelism, right? Apologetics. I'm not necessarily somebody assuming that. So, this ability to compare uh, on that level shows us that um, we can sort of step outside of our normal framework in a way that like animals can't. So, if you think about, let's say, let's say you see like a picture of runners, like running a marathon or something. Um, You don't see the finish line. You don't know how far away the finish line is, but you see them running, and like somebody tells you that they're running a race, or maybe they have like, you know, uh, numbers on their chest, something like this. You can tell who's winning because you have a concept of the finish line, something that stands outside of them that allows you to compare them. But if you're like looking at children on a playground and they're running, None of them are, like, winning. I mean, unless they're intentionally doing some sort of race. They're just running around, you know, like chickens with their heads cut off, right? They're just going crazy because they're kids and they're running around. But nobody's winning. Nobody's better or higher or anything like this. So we have to have something that's outside of the competitors in order to measure them. And so if we are, if we are comparing things on such a high level as to say, like, humans are more valuable than you know, like this tea that we're drinking. Like, humans are more valuable than that, than this like inanimate object. Um, that shows us that we're already functioning off of the assumption, the very rational assumption, that there's a standard that's outside of us that compares different levels of value, or you might say different levels of perfection, right? Because... The reason we talk about perfection, I mean, we can talk about perfection in in terms of myself, you know, like I'm not perfect, I'm trying to be better at being more generous, things like this. But we can talk about, um, you know, hypothetically, the perfection of a human is something that's better than the perfect elephant, something like this. Right. So now we're not just comparing imperfect to perfect, we're comparing perfections, different perfections, and the ability to do that means that there's something sort of outside this framework that measures it and gives rise to it, really, right? There, There's only a race if there's a finish line. So there's only a winner and a loser. Like, the, that status of winner and loser is caused by there being a finish line. Now, the finish line is not a winner or a loser, but it is, in some sense, already there. It's a sort of maximum that... Uh, allows us to compare and so in a similar way when we're comparing different perfections there must be a kind of perfection that's already there that we're intuitively aware of that allows us to be able to compare humans to animals something like this there's something outside there's a track that we're on there's a finish line now that also interestingly enough the, this is another I didn't mention this earlier but another Reason for apologetics is not just evangelism, but to spur on our own faith. Um, this argument is given by Aquinas in, like, the first basically what we would call the first chapter of his systematic theology. So, this is a book to seminaries, to pastors, to people who already believe. Because as we use reason to think about these things, now this has taught us something about God. This has taught us that God is perfect, that God is something different than us. But not only that God is perfect, but that whatever God's perfection is, it's something like beyond our perfection, something that it's almost just an analogy to call him perfect, right? Because it's not like he grew to perfection or that there could like be imperfection. It's that he's the very definition of what allows us to compare any sort of perfection. Um, So, you know, and as you collect different, arguments for God, you end up collecting some different attributes, right? And then that's using only reason, and then you finish it off by adding the Bible to reaffirm some of those things, and then to take you further. I will, I will say one more thing about persuasion versus, like, proofs, is when you, like, like in evangelism, when you're doing evangelism, you know, like if you're sharing your testimony, you customize it to the person that you're talking to in order to find common ground or to answer their particular questions. And so, you know, if somebody's listening to this or you, you know, Google some arguments for the existence existence of God, they're uh, inherently not going to be as persuasive as somebody who's actually talking to you about one of these arguments because that person will be able to answer your particular questions or uh, make particular connections to what you already believe or don't believe, like any evangelistic encounter, right? The gospel message is always the same. The reasons for God have been shown for thousands of years, sometimes hundreds of years, but to package it in a way that connects with somebody's heart and with what they already do or don't believe, their particular skepticisms or questions, that's a question for persuasion, not necessarily just an argument. So if you read an argument, it doesn't seem persuasive, then the best thing you can do is find somebody to explain it to you or be the person who's ready to explain it to somebody else. And uh, also to just like keep thinking over it over and over again.
0: Where can we start learning more about apologetics?
1: If you're looking for arguments to help you give a reason for the hope that you have, or you're seeking find answers yourself uh, I mean of course if you're seeking to find answers you need to find a Christian to talk to so they can explain some things and make connections make personal connections but if you're trying to practice apologetics um, you can honestly just google it and look at, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube Reasonable Faith um, Sean McDowell who is son of another apologist um, Josh McDowell he, he's got a bunch of stuff uh, William Lane Crank has a bunch of stuff uh, although the deeper you go into William Lane Craig, you know I disagree with some of his theology, but his apologetic stuff is really good. Um, we used to talk about Ravi Zacharias. I know that's a little bit taboo now uh, because of some different scandals, but his arguments are actually historic and still good. Um, or if you want to read a book, so that's that's videos and articles that you can find online pretty easily. Um, a book, like I said, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is great. The first portion of that is basically uh, is a very persuasive argument for God. And then the rest of the book is basically talking about Christian ethics and talking about virtue um, and things like that. So C.S. Lewis is very accessible, uh, although you have to read it slow in order to understand. It. I will say, speaking of like YouTube, you can find there's this uh, YouTube channel called C.S. Lewis Doodle, which has the whole like first part of C.S. Lewis's book on, you know, as like a video, like somebody reading it and and uh, creating this illustration. And so uh, that's a good place to go. I know that's not super specific, but there's just there's so many resources out there. As a closing takeaway, think about this: we believe in God for good reason or else we have no reason to believe in God.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Tea and Theology. Until next time.